right? So they, they had a rule that said, if you want to share something that's hacked or leaked, you can't tweet about it. And that's one of those things that if you hear it, uh, you might nod along and go, oh, I guess that makes sense. But if you pause to think about it for any length of time, it very quickly falls apart. That's Jesse Blumenthal. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is tech and innovation. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how Facebook and Twitter have responded to recent news articles that they found objectionable. Joining me today is Jesse Blumenthal. He is the leader of the Stand Together Communities Tech and Innovation Priority Initiative. Jesse reached out to me, said he was getting a lot of questions on this and really wanted to clarify what the position was and why we take the position that we take. It's a great conversation, one I'm looking forward to sharing with you. So let's go ahead and get right to it. Right now, the the big news, I guess, in some circles, not so much in others, is this New York Post release, the Biden emails, whatever's going on in there. But a corollary story to that has been the response of some of the social media giants to this story being uh, published in the New York Post. And that response from those social media giants has created a lot of concern and a lot of questions that that you've been dealing with, Jesse. Tell me about that. Sure. So I think most folks are probably familiar with uh, the series of events. Um, but, but as you said, the New York Post published a story based on what they claimed were emails of Hunter Biden's, uh, uh, that, um, sparked a lot of online debate. I think it's, uh, safe and neutral to say that. And, and, you know, some folks on the right saw this as potentially, uh, uh, smoking gun. Some folks, both on the right and the left, I think were, um, dubious about the provenance of the story. Um, but no matter whether you think the story is believable or not, I think the public discussion pretty quickly became not about what did the New York Post have to say, but rather about how did Twitter and Facebook react? Um, they reacted uh, differently, but it, with a similar effect. So Facebook announced that they would be limiting the distribution of the story um, in line with uh, previously announced policies uh, around limiting the spread of potential misinformation that, that seemed to be going viral um, in proximity to an election. And Twitter went further and, and really, I think, sparked folks' ire by saying, look, we think this is based on hacked material. Um, we have a policy uh, that I think they clearly hadn't thought through of not allowing tweets to be used to share hack material so we're just going to block the link so what what really set the internet aflame last week you know here we are two weeks from an election um was if you went to twitter and tried to direct message the new york post story to someone or tweet about it with a link um uh those 
actions didn't go through. And several people who had previously uh, tweeted about the story, um, including the New York Post itself, but also a number of high profile folks on the right, um, had their Twitter accounts um, suspended or tweets removed. And, you know, I, I as the priority initiative lead for tech and innovation, started getting a lot of questions, both from folks internally and externally. Uh, what do we as the Stand, Commun- Stand Together community think about this? Um, and my answer to them was, uh, was and is pretty simple, right? Um, Twitter and Facebook, I think, are dead wrong on this. Now, the First Amendment protects their right to be wrong, but uh, the answer to bad speech is not an ineffective attempt to stifle the spread of information. The answer to bad speech is more speech. So if you don't like what the New York Post is saying, go out and say something else. I think there was an initial conversation about the veracity of the New York Post story, how credible should the sources of these alleged emails been, um, uh, if this information is true, how should it affect how people are thinking about the election? All of those are, are totally valid conversations to have. But when uh, Twitter and to a lesser extent Facebook come in and say, we're just going to shut down conversation about that, I think that's clearly the wrong approach. So you said something a little bit ago that I want to go back to. You said that Twitter instituted this policy without really thinking it through or they didn't really think it through. And I'm, I wonder if you could build on that or re- flesh that out a little bit. Help me understand why you take that position. Sure. So Twitter had a policy, and I say had because they've walked it back, against uh, uh, hacked or leaked material, right? So they, they had a rule that said, if you want to share something that's hacked or leaked, you can't tweet about it. And that's one of those things that if you hear it, uh, you might nod along and go, oh, I guess that makes sense. But if you pause to think about it for any length of time, it very quickly falls apart. So all of the reporting that happened a couple of years ago as a result of the Snowden leaks about uh, the, the WikiLeaks material um, is hacked material. Um, the way in which the New York Times obtained President Trump's tax returns recently is pretty clearly um, hacked or leaked material. You know, uh, not probably not a day goes by that a newspaper somewhere in the United States does not report on um, hacked or leaked material, and that's a good thing, right? Uh, one of the one of the checks in a free society uh, against undue secrecy is the ability for whistleblowers to try and go through the proper channels or try and go through the press uh, and and sound the alarm. Now we can have, I think, and ought to have a public discussion about where that's appropriate and what mechanisms make sense uh, and, and um, you know, what level of scrutiny and or support for whistleblowers ought to exist. But I think it's, it's pretty clearly um, excessive to say, you know, Twitter as a platform um, will simply never allow the distribution of hacked or leaked material. Um, now, that's a stupid rule. Twitter is allowed to make stupid rules, um, but I think they they ought not to, right? And, and this gets to, I think, the the crux of what happened last week and why so many people were um, were rightfully ticked off about both Twitter and Facebook's behavior, which is, um, you know, yeah, they can make this choice. 
but it's the wrong choice and you shouldn't make it. Um, and, and, uh, while you have a right to be wrong, um, uh, everyone else has a, an equal right to be upset about it. And, you know, they have imperfectly, slowly, and, um, uh, probably unsatisfactorily begun to walk back, uh, uh, the, the rules that got them into this mess in the first place. There's a saying where we often attribute malice where we should attribute incompetence and looking at what the actions that were taken, I'm, I'm, I don't attribute malice. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm naive and you can correct me, but I'm not seeing malice as much as I'm seeing incompetence in, in an effort to avoid the same criticisms they were getting in 2016 over allowing fake news to be uh, just run rampant and probably a little bit in reaction to the, you know, the social dilemma on Netflix of how, how this information is spread through their algorithms. And am I wrong there? Am I being naive that this is in saying this is more incompetence than malice? Um, I don't think you're wrong. I think you're right to point to a strong incentive. And I think it's an unhelpful incentive that many of the large tech firms place uh, uh, or have, which is, you know, if you're hiring engineers overwhelmingly in the Bay Area and New York City, you're going to have a very left of center workforce. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? In, in some ways, that's just inherent in doing business in those areas. Um, but it's going to warp your perception of the world around you. And I think um, uh, there has been a tremendous amount of public pressure um, that is, quite frankly, um, well, you know, Dwayne, let me just be really blunt about it. There's a whole bunch of people in this country who are pissed off that Donald Trump got elected president. And after 2016, they were looking around for someone to blame because it couldn't be that their preferred candidate didn't win. And for the last four years, part of the reason I think you've seen this rising tech clash on the left is a sense that, well, these companies are responsible for why we got Donald Trump and I don't like President Trump. Therefore, these companies need to fix it. And, you know, whether you like the president or dislike the president, whether you think some of his policies are good or some of his policies are bad or you're somewhere in between, um, if you've got a problem with the way that Donald Trump acts as president, that is not something that Twitter can fix. That's not something that Facebook can fix. That's not something that Google can fix. Right? That's something that our political process um, can address. And, you know, we're two weeks away from an election and voters will be able to render their own verdicts. Um, but, but I think you're absolutely right that misplaced anger, uh, especially by their own employees, but also sort of outside activists who are leaning on these companies, as well as um, an inflated sense of their own role, um, uh, certainly contributes to say to taking positions like, well, we've got to have a policy against tax material. Otherwise, um, you know, someone might say something on Twitter that's not true. Heaven forbid. That's never happened. Yeah. <laughs> Help me exactly. understand. I hear some people say the, that they're a publisher, that they're a platform, 
Um, they should be better regulated. They should be regulated as a publisher. What's what's the argument there? What's the difference between a platform and a publisher? How do how do we look at these yeah. organizations? These these plat these social media apps. How do we look at them? Yeah, and how should they be regulated, if at all? Yeah. So um, for us, this question really comes back to question of individual responsibility, um, and one of the reasons why we've been so vocal about topics like Section 230, about broader questions about free speech online over the last number of years, is because we think that the the balance that Congress set in the mid-1990s was an appropriate one. And what that balance says is that individuals are responsible for their actions online, not the tools they use. And so, you know, if you're going to go on to Twitter and say something that is defamatory, um, if you are going to go on to Twitter and uh, uh, threaten to do harm to someone, that's on you, not on Twitter. And so the question becomes, um, okay, that, that's an extreme case. Um, what, uh, what about closer calls? And, and there's been a, a careful balance that's in play that holds um, individuals responsible for their actions, but also allows companies, because these are private companies that run um, uh, their own uh, tools that they've built that other people use um, to set their own rules. And, and here's why there's a, there were two main competing message boards in the early 1990s, um, uh, Prodigy and CompuServe. And, um, uh, they both got sued at various points. And the relevant thing for understanding sort of how we got from there to how we are here is, um, what they got sued for. So, um, one of the companies was trying to create a really sort of family-friendly environment. And so they hired a bunch of people to say, you know, we want this to be a safe place for kids and for you know people to come and not have to worry about sort of the worst parts of the internet. And so, you know, if you're swearing here, if you're rude, if you're harassing people, if you're posting pornography, we're going to moderate that and remove that. And the other company took a very hands-off approach and said, look, you know, um, we're putting up the space. People can come. They can do what they want. We'll see what happens. Um, both these cases wind through the courts. And what ends up happening when they get sued is the company that took a totally hands-off approach that said, um, you know, whatever, anything goes, um, uh, the courts held, well, you're not responsible for what happens there because you're not actively intervening. Um, what happened, though, to the, the family-friendly website was the court said, look, like you're trying to be a family-friendly website and you got sued because this thing happened. And you're you're saying you're taking care of this. So you're responsible for everything. And and what that does, going back to your question of incentives, is it creates a real disincentive to create anything other than an anything goes part of the Internet. And, you know, there there's room for that online. There's gab and 4chan and darker parts of the web where truly anything goes, um, including sometimes acts that are criminal. Um, but, but that's just not appropriate. Um, and, and I think we would all be worse off if, um, if, uh, 
uh, if there was an inability to say, you know, Facebook can't ban pornography or um, horrifically violent videos or um, uh, a content that is lawful, but, you know, really unpleasant. You know, beheading videos are lawful, um, but most people don't want to see those when they open up their Facebook feed and, and Facebook might not want to be the place to, to see that or might want the freedom to add a warning label or to um, uh, limit that to users who are above a certain age. Um, and so what has happened over the last couple of decades is are, is that these two principles have come together and been enshrined in law in Section 230. The first is, as I was saying, individuals are responsible for their actions online, not the tools they use. And the second is that um, people who create spaces online that allow other people to come and participate and post um, are able to, to set their own rules. Um, and, and we think that's a good thing, right, um, uh, in, in terms of what's the role of government. That doesn't necessarily uh, answer, though, okay, so what should those rules be, right? How, how do we want Facebook or Twitter or Google or your neighborhood blog or um, a smaller but important player like Wikipedia or Etsy or Yelp or TripAdvisor to behave? And so that's why back in January, um, the Stand Together community uh, released a set of principles for continued U.S. tech leadership, right? It's not an accident that the United States became the global tech leader. Um, we think it's because companies made decisions and were able to make decisions that were um, possible under U.S. law, but also based in American values. And so the, the first section of that set of principles was... Uh, what do we believe around free speech and association? And we said, you know, we believe free speech and association are essential to our society. The private companies are free to set the appropriate rules for speech that serve their consumer base. They should resist efforts by governments to limit lawful speech or to become pass-throughs for government action. Um, that the company should be skeptical of outside interests who will lobby them to limit free expression. And that uh, private companies should strive to create clear, understandable, and accessible rules that are enforced in an equitable and transparent manner. Just to take this conversation back to where it began, why was there so much outrage about what Twitter and Facebook did? Why were we out there, you know, I, I out in the press and a number of us um, on social media criticizing these companies for their choices? And it's because they failed the last two prongs of that test, Right. Um, they weren't appropriately skeptical of outside interests to lobby them to limit ex except, uh, expression, right? Whether it's their own employee base or, or, or other outside interests saying, hey, we're really, you know, upset about uh, who is currently president and we blame you for 2016. And so you need to do whatever you can to get in and stop this from happening again. Um, and they weren't clear or understandable or accessible about what their rules were. They weren't enforced in an equitable and transparent manner. And I think that basic sense of unfairness rightfully pisses people off. And so, you know, that's why, even though they had a right to do it, we were um, publicly critical of uh, Facebook and Twitter. And when I had conversations with folks at both of those companies, I was just as critical, maybe a little less polite uh, in private, too. 
what I'm hearing is they have every right to do what they did. It was just dumb and they shouldn't do it. Yep. Yep. And when I think about that incompetence also, going back to, to that, not only did they not squash the story, if that was their intent, I'm not, I'm not saying it was. If their intent was to squash the story, it was a complete and abject failure. And not only did they not squash the story, but they created an entire new one focused on them. I think that that's absolutely right. You know, about 17 years ago, um, Mike Masnick, who runs a publication called Tech Dirt, who's been a long-term partner of the Charles Koch Institute, um, uh, coined a term called the Streisand Effect. Um and Barbara Streisand was very upset that people, that a photographer, I think in a helicopter, had taken a picture of her Malibu home. And so she tried to uh, suppress that photo um, by uh, suing in court and um, trying to get this uh, this uh, uh, photo, you know, removed from the internet. And, you know, the exact same thing happened to Barbara Streisand. It's happened to Twitter and Facebook last week, which is uh, the number of people who were paying attention to uh, a story in the New York Post um, became orders of magnitude higher precisely because they tried to suppress it. And so thus the Streisand effect was born. And I thought, I think you saw a, you know, Hall of Fame entry and Streisand effect history um, <laughs> play out last week. And not only not only that. But there's a, I can't remember where I read it or watched a video on it or whatever, but there's there's a psychological um, impact that attempting to suppress information or attempting to keep people from information has on the, those people. And the fact of the matter is, when you try to keep information from people, it amplifies the believability of that information, regardless of whether it's true or not. When you tell someone you can't read this or we're not going to share this, people are more likely to believe that that stuff is true. You know, I think that's absolutely right. And it, it disrupts the um, verification, fact-checking um, uh, process of journalism that was already going uh, uh, underway prior to sort of Twitter and Facebook hand-fistedly intervening themselves. You know, Fox News' Chris Wallace um, was offered the exact same material that the New York Post eventually ran um, pre previously and, you know, has said publicly that he passed on the story. He didn't think at this point that Rudy Giuliani uh, was a particularly credible source for information like this and that uh, the provenance of the information that ultimately the New York Post re reported, he found suspect. Now, like, maybe he made the right call, maybe he made the wrong call, but but he made a judgment call and the New York Post made a different judgment call. And what, what would tend to happen is people would look for um, either facts that validate the story or facts that uh, uh, undermine its credibility. And that, that uh, would have played out. Uh, what, what, what was unfortunate about last week was that entire um, process uh, was short-circuited. Where do things stand as of today? So we're recording October 20th. What's the situation now? Are they still ham-fistedly suppressing this? You said Twitter's policy had changed, but what about Facebook? Yeah, so they've, they've mostly backed off, right? So Jack Dorsey um, uh, 
tweeted in response to a lot of the criticism towards the end of the day that basically we screwed this up and um, sort of half apologized for poorly articulating their reasoning. And then an executive at Twitter um, followed that up by uh, a more detailed thread that maybe we can put in the show notes on how their policy, you know, turns out they recognize their policy was a bad idea and here are the ways in which they're rethinking. Um, you know, uh, Facebook, uh, the situation's a little less clear, but also, um, a little less, um, extreme, right? So whereas on Twitter, it was, can I share this or not? Facebook's, uh, statement was, you know, we're limiting the spread of this story and, you know, but they don't get into details about how much or to whom were compared to what. And, you know, if you look on Facebook, the story is widely available. And if you look at some of the publicly available metrics around um, uh, uh, the story being shared, um, it was, it was pretty widely shared. Um, either way, I think both the distribution on Facebook and the distribution on Twitter pale in comparison to the number of people who have tuned in to both the story and the controversy surrounding it um, because of their actions. So, you know, um, uh, uh, if, if your measure of success here is how widely distributed was the New York Post story, um, it was almost certainly more widely distributed um, as a result of ham-fisted attempts to uh, suppress its spread than, you know, even the most, you know, successful news story uh, might have otherwise been. Big thanks to Jesse Blumenthal for not only taking the time to sit down and talk about this issue, but for being the one who reached out and said, hey, we need to sit down and talk about this issue. Great conversation. Glad we could get it done. If there are any questions you have about this priority initiative, tech and innovation, or any of the other priority initiatives that we're working on, please feel free to reach out to me at toppriority at afphq.org. I look forward to reading your emails. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you then.